0: Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. In this episode, with the government announcing last week a package of reforms to the UK's data protection laws, we ask, is this a major shift to take advantage of post-Brexit freedom, or is it rather tinkering at the edges of the law, in the knowledge that wholesale changes could risk our trading relations with Europe? We'll look at some of the key proposals and then step back and consider what they might mean in the round. Hello and welcome to this Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions podcast. I'm Adam Rose, a partner and head of the data practice at Mishcon Derea, and I'm joined by my colleague John Baines, Senior Data Protection Specialist. So John, plans were announced last Friday in response to a government consultation end of last year. In headline terms, what do you think?
1: Headline terms. Well, I think it's important that we bear in mind that, as you say, this is just a response to a consultation. We don't yet have a clear view of what the actual reforms to the law will look like. We don't have a bill yet. That said, a lot of this was telegraphed. A lot of the proposed changes were in the consultation and are now being proposed to go forward the government's made no secret of its intention to bring in these reforms. And let's bear in mind as well that the government still has a a stonking majority. So I I think we're likely to see these made concrete in legislation soon.
0: So I I said at the outset in my introduction, is this just tinkering or is it substantial? And before we go into the detail, which side of that fence do you think we are?
1: I think I'm more on the tinkering side Mm -hmm. than the other. There was an opportunity to make some very bold changes. You and I might not have necessarily agreed with them, but going back to the point that the government's got this majority, given that we have exited the European Union and we're not required to have the same data protection law that, that the European Union has, you could have expected perhaps something something more substantive. There are a lot of changes. It's a very long document. You and I have, have for our sins, gone through it. There are some interesting changes. Some of them will will raise eyebrows both domestically and indeed at, at the European Commission. But put them all together, are they an enormous wholesale? reform of data protection or no i I think not so it's a business will be quite pleased with
0: that in that businesses have spent millions of pounds and hundreds and thousands of hours getting ready for gdpr in the run-up to may 2018 have spent significant amounts of money since may 18 making sure they're staying in line multinational businesses have aligned their practices to gdpr so they can meet the eu27 requirements And the UK requirements and the EEA requirements. And you've got a bunch of other countries introducing GDPR like law. So, so to some extent, it's good news for business if there isn't that much change, but perhaps surprising as we've both hinted at that it's not been as ambitious. It sort of shouted ambition, but actually not delivered that ambition.
1: Business as usual, arguably. Yeah. I mean, uh, some of the details we'll, we'll come on to talk about. You might find that some businesses are slightly um, put out by the proposals to sort of change some of the compliance obligations, but only in a minor way. So some they're not going to
0: bother, are they? The the, the businesses that are operating across Europe and in the UK are just going to stick with what they're doing at the moment. They're not going to have a special lesser standard for the UK or different standard for the UK. And certainly there's nothing ever stops a business doing more than it's required, and they will just continue doing more than than is required. I I guess for small businesses, it might make a difference, and for new businesses who are focused on the UK, it might make a difference. But any larger business, any organisation trading in data, dealing in data across borders, will presumably just maintain their GDPR standards and keep an eye on what's going on here. But even if they're based here in the UK looking at what europe does i imagine so in terms of the structure there was a i guess before this came out there there was sort of always the thought that maybe the uk would say we're going to do away with gdpr or or in sort of lighter moments we might laugh and say well they'll call it the british data protection act or something and, and and just stick a picture of the queen on the front rather than the european
1: flag but but that isn't what's happening at all, is it? No, the, it's not said in express terms, but but throughout, it seems clear that the UK GDPR will will remain. Yeah, you you and I were joking. I think we'd spotted someone on social media saying the government's going through with a, a rubber rubbing out any reference to the, to the letters G, D, P and R. But no, that looks like we will we will have well, that we can't same tell. structure.
0: What we can't tell, I guess, is whether they're going to introduce a totally new piece of legislation that just effectively photocopies large chunks of GDPR or whether there will be a new act that reflects the same provisions. So, just structurally, things like we're in a strange position at the moment with UK GDPR, where all the recitals in GDPR are effectively part of UK law, which is an unusual position to be in, they might tidy that up and get rid of all those recitals. But uh, if they do, we're going to have to get to grips with an entirely new piece of law that does
1: essentially the same as the existing piece of law. And I wondered about that and the status of the recitals. But it does look like there are a couple of references to where something is mentioned in the recitals, it will become part of the statute which to me suggests that in fact there won't be a wholesale change, we'll be left with the instrument and the recitals. So just to turn then to the the detail or the, the detail
0: that we have, one of the plans that's been announced in in the paper at the end of last week was to remove some of the paperwork i guess associated with gdpr compliance so the ROPA, the record of processing activities which larger businesses have to do dpia's data protection impact assessments getting rid of data protection officers dpos
1: in situations where they're currently compulsory is that going to make a big difference to anyone if you're a business which is currently subject to those mandatory requirements you you might read that and say well great, these things are all very well, but they really amount to a lot of bureaucracy and, uh, as you say, a lot of paperwork. But if you look at the proposals, what they're proposed to be replaced by is something called a privacy management programme or privacy management programmes, which will be mandatory. I mean, the consultation talks about them being required and they will involve Appointing a suitable senior individual to be responsible for the program. Or a DPO in old money. Yeah, yeah. Or ensuring organizations implement risk assessment tools, which looks a little bit like data protection impact assessments, a more flexible record keeping requirement. Well, the the (laughs) road is flexible now. So are we just getting like for like? There are obvious Differences. I mean, a data protection impact assessment has to consider all sorts of wider issues around human rights impacts, and maybe this will be this will be a more focused, more restricted approach. But I, I, I'm not sure, really. Again, taking a step back, if there's that much difference. And
0: again, for a business that's operating in the EU and in the UK they might as well have a single way of approaching this rather than the European way of approaching it under a DPIA and then the British way of doing it under a privacy management programme. It would be odd to think that anything will actually change even if they can do less under this new proposal. So again, lacking ambition. And if you look at the press release that came out on Friday, it talked about saving British business a billion pounds. And then you read the small print, or in fact, you read the big print on the next page, it said over a 10-year period. I guess this is perceived to be part of that. But it's hard to see where a 100 million pounds of savings
1: comes from this sort of thing. And it's really this sort of thing, which is the difference. Yes, I I agree. And I think a picture will emerge throughout as we go through these details of, and and we'll, we'll perhaps touch on it more towards the end. But there is a risk or there would be a risk of the UK diverging too much from that european well let's, model. let's
0: just jump let's just jump straight into that so so the question that most listeners will, will be aware of is is the UK has a finding from the European Union a finding of adequacy which allows data to move freely from European businesses into the UK as if the UK were still part of the European Union. So in the same way that you can transfer data from London to Birmingham, you can transfer data from London to Berlin, and from Berlin to London. So That's where we are now because of this finding of adequacy that the European Commission made last year. The concern has been that if the UK departs too far from the European standard, from GDPR, in terms of giving security to data, the European Commission might turn around and say, no longer is the UK an adequate country. Do you think there is a risk to that finding of adequacy from these proposals?
1: I think there's a risk but I I think as they've been presented to us, it's a lower risk than some might have expected. This comes back to what what we've just discussed, the the replacement of some of the mandatory bureaucracy with some more mandatory bureaucracy, which looks a little bit like the old. The risk would be just pushing the envelope too far or testing the patience of the European Commission too much. So there are two
0: two other areas that I think are worth us just sort of stopping and thinking about one is if the uk agrees that other third countries are adequate in their treatment of data so that data could flow from berlin to london in my example and then from london to somewhere that europe hasn't said has adequacy but the uk decides it does so there's sort of seepage or escape routes for data that that is adequate while here but then Europe decides is inadequate once there. And, and the US is the obvious example. So we've had the two Schrems cases. The European courts keep finding that data going to America is, is not as of itself safe. If the UK decided to say that the US was a safe location for data to go, that, that would entirely undermine the Schrems roots, And I guess SHREMS 3 would come about
1: around transferring data to the UK. That's the elephant in the room. I think what we saw on Friday, these proposals, as I say, I'm, I'm sure eyebrows will be raised at the European Commission, but the big story is around what countries will get an adequacy determination from the UK who wouldn't get the same from the Commission. So the
0: UK's, I guess, taken a view, and, and I've heard various presentations by representatives from uh, DCMS, the, the- government department in charge of data, that the UK will take an ambitious approach to adequacy findings, that various countries will be given a,
1: a finding of adequacy, and Europe will follow? Well, we, we've got a list of possible candidates, and it includes the US. Yes. It also includes Australia, Singapore, Australia and Singapore, you'd imagine
0: there might be a little race between whether the UK grants adequacy first or whether Europe grants adequacy first. Possibly,
1: although Europe's had a lot of time to consider and and hasn't. And and I think Australia in particular, I think some of its security laws are of concern to the Commission. And that's really about its security services being able to access,
0: which is, which is one of the concerns about the US, uh, uh, as well. So the, the other area that I want to move us on to, which is an issue that's going to potentially affect adequacy, but is interesting, I think, in its own right, is around cookies and PECA, the privacy and electronic communications regulations. Because while this reform has been held as a reform of data protection law, as listeners will know, there are really two areas of data protection law. There's GDPR, Data Protection Act type stuff, and then there's electronic marketing and cookies and all of those things under PECA, which which runs in parallel. So quite a lot of the headline grabbing stuff is actually not data protection, pure data protection reform, but more PECA Reform
1: PECR for those wondering what
0: PECA stands for, the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're sort of being told it's, it's the end of annoying cookie banners. Mm. Now, you and I know that the the reason those annoying cookie banners are there is, is not really, it's not really the fault of the law. It's, it's how websites, businesses choose to operate their cookie practice. So just quickly to refresh our, our memory, what the law currently says is that you can place a cookie on someone's device if it's necessary for the purposes of the of the website being operational anything that's not necessary requires a user's consent these proposals suggest that in fact we will be moving from that consent model to a default model whereby websites will be able to place non-essential cookies without consent. So, so we've got the non-essential cookies will be able to be
0: put on websites. So that that will mean that businesses, and I'm I'm looking at this from a consumer citizen perspective and an EU perspective when when saying this, businesses will be able to put cookies on your browser when you're visiting a website without needing your explicit consent. So do away with those annoying pop-ups. But then they can take that data and collect that data and do more stuff with that data. Let's
1: remember what a lot of these non-essential cookies are about. They are about gathering information about visitors to websites. And they're about delivery of programmatic advertising. Now, we can agree or disagree on whether that's a good or a bad thing or a neutral thing but that that's why the large majority of them exist and so what these proposals effectively say is that profiling website users through the use of cookies is okay as a default model you don't need consent now that would go back to those eyebrows in in europe that might well cause some consternation Mm. There's also a question about how you do that in a territorial sense. How, how do you have a UK website that allows or doesn't allow European visitors to get these cookies, but does allow UK ones? You're into the area of geo-blocking. It gets complicated. Complexity equals cost to business. Good for lawyers. So the other big story on PECA that that
0: really was headline stuff from the government's perspective is increasing the level of fine available. So that, that's going up from a cap of 500000 under PECA to the GDPR level of £17.5 million. Pounds. Do you think that's going to make any real difference?
1: Well, <laughs> did, did it actually make that much difference when the fines went up under GDPR? We We've only seen three or four big fines two two very big ones two very big ones i think that might be the case under pecker we'll get the big companies with serious infringements may get those big but fines. there are very few of those most most
0: uh, pecker fines have been for sort of fly by night businesses that that have sent out millions of unrequested emails faxes and phone calls and they get fined 2 300,000 quid and then do a runner before they pay. So finding someone 200,000 when they're not going to pay or 12 million when they're not going to pay much of a muchness. Yeah.
1: I agree. I, d- I don't think that this is going to have much of a sort of societal change by increasing these fines.
0: And and also not really a Brexit dividend at all in that this was uh, the 500k was set by the UK and 17 and is being set by the UK somewhat amusingly, to be in line with the European standard under GDPR rather than a post-Brexit British standard. The other thing in terms of fines that that got some commentary in the week leading up to the press announcement on Friday was the ICO being able to retain £7.5 million of
1: fines towards its own coffers. Do you think that will make any difference to anything? I really think it will. This hasn't got a huge amount of, of attention. As we say, this is separate to the announcement on Friday. It's an announcement on Wednesday, I think. But people always or often ask us, you and me, what happens to these fines? And what we will say is they go to the Treasury. The proposal is that the ICO, as you say, will be able to retain up to £7.5 million a year to fund its, I think it's described as its litigation costs, but in fact, that's that's litigation goes more widely than you might think, and I think they'll be able to use it for a lot of their regulatory work. That's a really significant increase to their to their war chest. I guess as long as the government doesn't cut seven and a half million from their funding, that's you, you've mentioned that to me. I, I guess that's the cynics, uh, the cynics, skeptics, answer, the sceptics. There was one thing I was just going to mention on Pecker as well, if it's okay, which I think is is quite relevant. And again, it's it looks like one of those little details, but in fact, it's quite significant. And this is currently commercial organizations can send direct electronic marketing unsolicited to their customers and to their prospects, those who've sort of asked them about their services. That wasn't available for non-commercials, so charities, non-profit, political parties. The proposal is that they will be brought in line so for that that could be very significant so, for so fundraising. So to give a, a,
0: an example, so if I have been in touch with cancer research and I've made a donation to them or something in the past, they can then send marketing, electronic marketing to me without me having to actively opt in. The so-called soft opt-in will apply. In other words, once I've been in touch with them, as long as they give me the chance to opt out every time, they can send me marketing material. And as you say, that's been something that charities have fought for for a long time, because the just the wording of PECA as it stands at the moment stops them benefiting from that, and political
1: parties as well, which will obviously be attractive to some politicians. I think this is really significant. I think there might be a bit of pushback, because, especially if people start to realise that political parties will be able to increase their... It's called marketing. I don't know if it is marketing, but it's that's what its class does. But it leads to an increase in, in emails from political parties. So I just want to move probably
0: finally onto data subject rights. So one of the things that has always been the case... In the the UK, under the old law, pre-GDPR law, and then changed slightly under GDPR, In the the slight change being that it became free of charge, where you used to have to pay £10, there was talk of introducing a charge for making a a SAR or a DSAR, a subject access right, or data subject access right. What's the government now proposing?
1: Yeah, so no fees. I think a lot of people thought that there would be an introduction of a fee, it's tremendously costly for data controllers, for businesses to deal with some DESARS, subject access requests, but no, no fees. I think that might have been another step too far for the European Commission. So obviously, I think-
0: the, fee, the fee pre-GDPR was only £10, and it's always thought that even a £10 charge acted as some sort of disincentive to data subjects, to individuals making the request. And that that would certainly have been the case pre-online banking, where you'd have had to have written a check and posted a check to the business. I guess with online banking and and most people having a, a mobile banking app on their phone, a £10 charge wouldn't act as the same disincentive. And in fact, 10 pounds for a business faced with potentially tens of thousands of pounds of work to respond to a DSAR wouldn't be too impressed by receiving a 10 pound contribution to it.
1: No. It solely turns on that incentive or disincentive point. I mean Adam, I've I've made a couple of DSARs since the fee was removed that I probably wouldn't have made. Yes, prior. That's pure anecdote. But I, I suspect that there are a lot of people who would be disincentivised if yes. the fee had been... Uh,
0: and created. I guess some of those sort of blanket de that you see where somebody will write to 100 companies at a £10 a pop cost, that's £1,000, whereas this way it's just a, it's an admin task
1: where you have your spreadsheet on your laptop and you fire off 1,000 emails, however many emails yeah. I've said. I mean, what the government has said, so currently... It, You can refuse to comply with a DSAR, or indeed you can charge a fee if you say that the request is manifestly unfounded or excessive. And the government is saying we're going to change that so that it will say vexatious or excessive. And the implication is that that is a lower standard, so you'll be more likely to refuse if something is vexatious. I can't tell if
0: vexatious is higher or lower than I think, actually, I, think
1: it's, I think a judge would say vexatious is higher than unfounded. Again,
0: good, good, good for lawyers. Good for <laughs> lawyers. Um, anything else, John, in closing that you would like to mention that we've not spoken about so far? I'd just
1: say on subject access requests. And, and in fact, this this appears throughout. There, there are some distinct proposals, and then there are some areas where the government says, we will consider... And I don't know if that's consider for the future or consider for this forthcoming legislation. One is that they're considering how to address specific sectoral needs, e.g. healthcare and those of small and medium-sized businesses. So there may be more to come on that. The other thing I was going to mention, Adam, but again, I'm not sure it makes that much difference. There are a few changes to the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office. Just tell tell me quickly about those. Well, again, they're they're sort of structural. So at the moment, the commissioner is known as a corporation soul. It's one person. Everything flows down from them. The proposal is to have a more collegiate structure, possibly, although this isn't said in in terms, but different commissioners perhaps for different functions – a chief executive, a board. The government will be able to review the commissioner's salary. Currently, that's a matter reserved for Parliament. Some of these are very important for the commissioner, for businesses and for data subjects. I'm not entirely sure it's significant. They may get a new name as well, which... uh,
0: Something exciting for us to look forward to. John, thank you. We will be continuing to monitor the developments and hope to be back talking about them soon. But for now, let's wrap up there. I'm Adam Rose, and I was talking to John Baines in this Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions podcast. Thanks to you all for listening. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit com.